How do we know that Jesus didn't work for Amazon.com nor subscribe to Jeff Bezos' philosophy concerning the workplace environment? Jesus thought his hardworking disciples deserved a break. Having been sent out two by two by Jesus to carry on his work of spreading the good news of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the 12 not only preached and taught, they assumed Jesus's ministry of healing and exorcism. When Jesus, who had apostolized the apostles, saw that their mission had gone well, he thought it called for some well-deserved downtime. The 12, upon their return, had no time to trade high fives with each other or Jesus. They learned that John the Baptist, Jesus's prophetic mentor and apocalyptic associate, had been killed on the orders of the Jewish tetrarch or king, Herod Antipas. The disciples attended to the burial of John in a proper tomb, literarily anticipating the burial of Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea, mourned by Jesus's female followers. King Herod's consort, Herodias, had been conspiring to have John disappeared for some time. John, unkempt as always, had run afoul of Her Royal Highness by indicting her for entering into an illegitimate marriage to Herod, one that clearly violated the law of Moses. She used the occasion of King Herod's birthday to exact her revenge. Herodias put forward her young daughter, whose identity is not clear in Mark, but who, regardless, was probably no older than 10 to 13 years. To dance for her lecherous spouse and his randy courtiers. The girl may have been nubile, but she exceeded her mother's steeliness. She not only asked for John's execution, as her mother suggested would be a reward in proportion to what Herod had promised, the tween asked for John's head on a salver, which she proceeded to serve in the banquet hall. No better way to extinguish the male gaze than that. A grisly parody of the Last Supper. Jesus thought that he and the 12 needed to get out of Dodge. They needed to repair to an unpopulated, deserted place. Bezos, of course, prefers populated places. He prefers places with easily available public transportation. He wants to be near a big airport or spaceport. For his workforce, there is no rest for the weary. By contrast, Jesus hustles his boys onto a boat bound for a lonely place. Who knows where? I'm sure you have noticed over the past several weeks that there is a lot of boat travel in the Gospel of Mark. In no gospel does Jesus sail more often than in Mark. Paul doesn't mention Jesus' nautical proclivities. 
non-canonical Jesus traditions do not supply the slightest reason to think Jesus' feet ever left terra firma, or that his disciples could have distinguished a mackerel from a bluegill. One of Mark's most enduring innovations was to paint traditions about Jesus against a landscape replete with mountains, uninhabited regions, villages, and especially a sea, which was really a lake. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and eight miles wide. Its total circumference comprises 33 miles. People on foot could keep a boat in their sights and they could actually get around the shore pretty easily. By comparison, Lake Michigan is 307 miles long and 118 miles wide. But it is a great lake, but it is not a sea. Lake Granby in Colorado, however, makes for a better comparison. At 39 miles, Granby's circumference is about six miles longer than the lake and Tiberias. And Jesus' traversals of that Galilean body of water are bewildering. The geography of Mark makes no sense. If you read the Gospel of Mark with a map at the ready, you have to wonder what in the world is going on. The crisscrossings back and forth make little sense. Jesus's indirect itinerary is, as my landlocked Hoosier mother would say, going round Robin Hood's barn. The natural phenomena Mark ascribes to the lake are unbefitting the territory. Porphyry, the third century pagan critic of Christianity, was right. Experts in the truth about those places report that there is no sea there, though they do refer to a small river-fed lake at the foot of the mountain in Galilee near the city of Tiberias, a lake easily traversed in small canoes in no more than two hours and insufficiently capacious for waves or storms. What are we to make of Mark? On closer examination, we see that the author is consciously trying to imitate Homer's Iliad. Jesus' teaching, deeds, and exploits echo and transvalue that earlier well-known poem. If one has eyes to see, the Sea of Galilee is the blind bard's wine-dark sea. Jesus is a new Odysseus. Jesus is a better Odysseus. He absorbs characteristics of some other actors in the tale, but the crucified and risen Messiah is a hero, a true hero, the Son of God. The disciples whom he calls the unrelenting crowds he attracts, and we, the readers and hearers of the gospel, are being caught up in an epic greater than we could ever have imagined. 
And Jesus has magic clothes. Odysseus didn't have magic clothes. At times, both could certainly have used an invisibility cloak. That's clear from today's gospel reading. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Sometimes it's best to let the clothes do the talking. The woman who was healed from her years-long hemorrhage had only to touch Jesus' garment from behind. Today's gospel reports that wherever he came, in villages, cities, or country, or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and besought him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Mark's mention of the fringes on Jesus' cloak is a reference to the blue threads that Titzit worn even today by devout Jewish men on the corners of their prayer shawls, as directed in the book of Numbers. Merely touching the fringes of Jesus' cloak led to healing. It is not clear that the 12 whom Jesus commissioned to share his responsibilities of, the, of spreading the gospel had magic clothes. As you will recall, Jesus adjured them to pack lightly. No bread, no bag, and no money in their belts. Not to put on two tunics. Theirs was an itinerant, urgent, restless work. They were slender reeds toward which to grasp. There were other things the apostles lacked. Apparently at Hogwarts, they had dozed off during Professor Snape's lecture on feeding miracles. Not including, included in the passage we heard today is the story about the 5,000 men who expected a box supper after Jesus's longish sermon. Mark notes that Jesus had begun to teach them many things. The disciples were styming. They hadn't made arrangements with the caterer, and their credit card didn't have a high enough spending limit to spring for takeaway at the nearby market. Jesus, not frazzled by the crowds that had driven them to the sea, took a page out of Homer, and the stories about the feasts presided over by Nestor at Pelos and Menelaus at Sparta. Jesus was the perfect host, exhibit, exhibiting impeccable manners. Jesus had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he refused to send them away hungry, as the disciples suggested. Taking the few supplies available, he spread a humble but copious feast and ordered the disciples around like waiters. He told them to arrange several grand drinking parties, symposia, like so many garden plots on the green grass, apparently because the verdant grass offered greater comfort than the rocky shore or prickly dry grass. Jesus gave a proper blessing and summoned the disciples to serve his guests. 
Everyone ate to satiety. The disciples dutifully gathered the remaining fragments, one basket each. The fare was modest, but the service was superb. We'll hear John's rather different version of the feeding of the 5,000 next week. Stay tuned. It was tempting to turn today's readings into an allegory about the need for already wearied and frazzled frontline workers and caregivers to receive respite from the press of patients they are dealing with in the wake of variant D and the nationwide drop in COVID vaccinations. I could have shared very real stories from my youngest sister, Debbie, who manages the COVID floor at Indiana University Health Bloomington Hospital. They document the fact that freedom from restrictions seems to be met daily with reason to fear another wave, dampening our summer enthusiasms and creating uncertainty about our hopes and plans for the fall. I do not wish to follow that line today, though. We continue to keep all of those persons and present factor, presenting factors in our prayers. But I want to continue to entertain, for a few moments at least, the notion of being swept up in an epic drama by the stories we narrate and enact. Quite apart from the daily news that documents our fascination with and our willingness to indulge billionaire flights of fancies and the abuse of human capital, capital, our biblical stories capture our imaginations and offer us a reality in which we Christians choose to live and move and have our being. Where unquarantined people throng together to touch the hem of God's presence among us where spiritually hungry people who share in a modest common meal, graciously hosted, discover a new form of community or an old form of community, where anxious people are also apostolized to undertake God's work in the world. The Anglican priest, poet, and liturgist Percy Dearmer, the author, author of the Parsons Handbook in 1899, summons that worldview, captures our epic vision in a post-Pentecost prayer set beautifully by Harold Friedel as the much beloved anthem, draw us in the spirit's tether. For when we humbly in thy name two or three are met together, thou art in the midst of them. Alleluia, alleluia. Touch we now thy garments hem. As the brethren used to gather in the name of Christ to sup, then with thanks to God the Father, break the bread and bless the cup. Alleluia, alleluia. So knit thou our friendship up. All our meals 
and all our living. Make us sacraments of thee, that by caring, helping, giving, we may true disciples be. Alleluia, alleluia. We will serve thee faithfully. Amen.